From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 201 of the Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan. As always, uh, they're still in far-flung parts of the world, and I'm here in Sacramento enjoying the sunshine. Sunshine is good. <laughs> Headed home soon enough to, to, my, to my kitchen renovation situation to see how that's going. Hopefully, they will be making less noise. That's so did you go to Panama just to get out of the kitchen? No, the original plan was to get was to do the, the, the a January summer place. And then as we scheduled things, we realized this was going to be in our to be advantageous to be not in the house for a week while we do a kitchen renovation. Yeah. Better to make a podcast yeah. without construction in the background. Oh, it's been a challenge. <laughs> it's better it's better to be nowhere near that home when it's going through renovations as a person who has recently survived a couple of these things i will say it's better to just go to panama every time you do a, a renovating it has its own challenges though being not in the studio let's have a let's let's do our question of the day quick one what part of human culture do you think aliens would find ridiculous guys and i'll go first because i think it's everything i literally think you just look and say like they w- there is very little that is normal it seems at times of the way people are because generally if you're looking at at you know humans they are different than almost every other living thing on the planet so i think you know but but i i i'm going to go broadly they're going to think most of it's alien and weird well assuming that the aliens are all wearing unitard uh aluminum foil outfits i think that they would think our clothing and our and our norms of society would be very very odd but you know they get they only have three fingers to point at you and and make fun of you with so I don't care. <laughs> See, Star Trek tells me they have ridges on their heads. Sorry, that's that's <laughs> exactly. And I would say that they would be most perplexed by the entire concept of reality television competition programs, right? Uh, whether that's for dating purposes or for uh, secret singer purposes or anything else like that. I think the fact that we intentionally make television programs to make fun of one another and to ruthlessly mock people's shortcomings and and insecurities i think the the fact that we've arrived at that point is most curious to an alien it's most curious to me quite frankly well and they may also find it odd that we are so obsessed with recording ourselves like a a million selfies a day uh like they, they will be the post selfie generation Said by three podcasters. It is actually odd. <laughs> hey, MSPs. People are talking about you behind your back. They're regulators and legislators. They're CISA and the states of Texas, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Louisiana, and more. Every state now has at least one committee in their state legislature that focuses on cybersecurity. That means regulation is coming. You can count on it. The National Society of IT Service Providers was created to give you a seat at the table when someone's talking about you. That includes regulators, legislators, and even the media. 
Find out more and join today at www.nsitsp.org. We're working on your behalf to turn the industry into a profession. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, let's dive into our first topic here today. And I'm going to lead us off with a reference to, we've got some links in the show notes, to the uh, the latest job numbers. And I know we've been t- kind of talking about this a little bit, but I think it is important for people in A, the technology industry, and B, the channel within the technology industry, to be aware of the difference between the headlines and the numbers that we hear versus some of the realities that we are that we are actually dealing with. The latest numbers that uh, that we're highlighting is that total new jobs in the United States were up by a total of about 235,000. And yet, this is the same uh, situation. It's the same time in reality when large enterprise and tech companies have reduced jobs by over 151,000 uh, units. As we look at these numbers, it is easy to think, oh no, it's the end of the world, and we're on the edge of a devastating downturn. But I think a little bit of uh, you know self-reflection and reality check might be in order here. So before we get into any of the individual numbers that are associated with this, uh, what do you guys think about the latest data on jobs in America? Well, the story is really told easily by the fact that Apple has so far done zero. And, and I, like, I look at that and say, like, well, what, what did Apple do? Well, funny, they didn't grow too fast. They didn't over, they did not aggressive, they kept a long-term view of things. They did not aggressively lean into everything is all going to be digital. And look, by the way, I was a predictor that I thought everything was an accelerant, right? I thought COVID was an accelerant. Turns out not entirely true, right? So, so, so I made a bad call in there too, but so did a lot of other, uh, you know, business owners on this. Tim Cook did not. And so he's being proven to be very right on this. He's, he was sm- slower in diligence. And I will also look and say, like, look, cybersecurity professionals still as much in demand as ever and has not gone down. Overall, in terms of when I look at the tech job marketplace, there's still more availability than there are workers. There are now available workers, right? And so I'm expecting many of them to get plugged in to new jobs in, this, in the position. And we're only, you know, for each individual human, this is a big deal. Um, but, you know, 150,000 people... Uh, you know, moving around within the, the economy, let's point out that we've estimated a lost roughly half a million removed from the job from the job market by COVID death. So, <laughs> you know, let, let's let's put these into well, relative importance. And I, I have two points. So the first one would be, I think that it's interesting. It's always interesting to me that these gargantuan companies follow fads and, and trends and do stupid stuff, the same as every other company in the world. And they overhired most of them. I mean, Microsoft said that they increased their staffing 50% in the pandemic um, just to make sure that they could hoard those employees and have them available. Well, now it's time to shed them. The second thing I would say is it's real interesting to see this coming out right next to the earnings reports. So as this airs two days from now, Apple will re- will report their earnings. My guess is it will not be like the others. It will be good news. And you know, if you look at like Microsoft, they lay off 10,000 people and then a couple of days later they release their earnings report. Well, guess what? It wasn't good. Like you don't lay off 10,000 people if you're screaming, you know, through the roof. So 
it's a good indicator that these companies have shot themselves in the foot intentionally <laughs> and now they're just having to put on the bandage and, and get on with their life. Uh, I think this will all mellow out in 2022 or 2023. Uh, I, I think that what you're going to see is the, the availability of labor inside the SMB community will be relieved significantly. The price of labor will go down and things will be pretty normal, which also means this is going to have a very moderating effect on inflation. See, I agree with that idea. The macro analysis says that when there is not nearly enough people to fill the available positions, each individual becomes significantly more expensive. And that has really damaged the prospects of growth and the, the, the capability of small businesses to actually find either A, technically qualified individuals, or B, anybody who is capable of going out and selling. Now, I tend to take a, a more of a network effect type of a, a, an analysis of this, and I believe that the inability of channel companies to find and hire individuals has a direct effect on limiting the revenue of the vendors whose products we represent. It's not, it's not hard science, right? Like the concept is that when 100,000 resellers say, the market's okay, the market's doing fine, my customers are still paying me, and I would like to grow, but I can't find at any cost the individuals that I need to staff my organization and then actually grow to serve more customers. If I can't do that, then I struggle to see how they're going to do more than just very marginal increases in total output. Uh, we wish that we could keep our headcount the same and increase our revenue by 50%, but it generally doesn't work like that. It works like, well, we find the opportunity, we engage the contract, we hire the people, we fulfill that with capacity. When we can't grow, by extension, our vendors cannot grow. I think you guys will will uh, appreciate one of the the observations in one of these numbers, right? Google was notorious for laying off 12,000 people. And it's the largest reduction in force that they've ever had in the history of their organization. But they're not doing it in areas that are profitable or growing across their enterprise. They're doing it in some of their core operations, specifically people who are responsible for selling advertising in the Google network. What? That seems a little bit existential for these guys, right? That's how they make money. How could they make money by laying off people in ad sales? Well, they do what all vendors do, and they say, you should go and talk to the resellers who sell advertising in the Google network, but who can also do difficult and tedious labor like contracts and scheduling and campaign planning and uh, revenue management and 30-day uh, net terms with those customers. The channel can do those things for vendors. That vendor can grow with fewer people, but they the channel can't grow unless they can find people. Again, Carl, I think it's good news because what it says is the channel can can now grow, which means the industry can grow. May, okay, so maybe you're not wrong, but I'm going to actually throw another you know last thought in in here as another reason. Look, they're now under ma massive pressure on the advertising business from the DOJ. That that came in just you know, at, you know as as we're talking about this, that's that's now a new case. If you're possibly going to be making changes in your advertising business, 
maybe that's the place that you start cutting proactively in terms of people because you know you're going to be doing stuff and that helps juice short term your from a staffing and a revenue perspective and you're now gearing up it's a bit conspiracy theory but it's it makes a little bit more sense to me than saying they're doing this because of their resellers no, no they're said. not doing it to benefit their resellers. <laughs> they're only doing it to uh, cut their own cost while at the same time preserving the revenue function, which is now fulfilled by an outsourced third party. And uh, that's kind of why all of us in the channel have jobs, because all of the vendors eventually recognize, you know, variable cost on resellers who only get paid when they do a deal. That's way more affordable than fixed costs. Well, I'm going to move us on to topic number two, which is an interesting perspective on the FBI and data. Uh, there was recently, a, of course, a, a mass shooting in Monterey Park, California. This is going to be left out of the FBI's nationwide crime statistics because the city and the county are not using the Justice Department's new crime reporting system. You didn't know there's a back-end national incident-based reporting system, which is the way that, you know, that these, this information is collected. Uh, and it turns out about 33% of law enforcement agencies are not feeding data into this system. This includes places like Los Angeles and New York City. Uh, you know, we, we talk all the time about the, the relevancy of data. You have to look at this from a big picture. You say, okay, the Justice Department took the time, updated their systems, made the investments to move into the, mo into the modern piece, and a third of their you know, constituents have not moved to the to the next bit. I lay this all out and I look and say, look, it's, it's the value of data. And, and I wanted to ask, gents, as you look at this sort of data disconnect, is this opportunity? Is this a, uh, you know, is this what always happens? What was your take? I think, uh, sadly, this is what always happens. Uh, <laughs> there's a thing called the MMWR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. It's one of the few government publications that's actually accurate because it's based on uh, dead bodies in the United States, right? It's like, what did people die of and when did they do it, right? Uh, and it's one of the few things where we have nearly perfect statistics. We, almost nobody ever uh, is not found when, when they die, right? But almost all the other statistics in the United States are based on who gets to report, when they get to report, how it gets reported. Part of what's going on here is that all of the states will eventually report once they update their systems. But if you've got some old COBOL piece of crap and you're using that to gather your numbers and then you need to plug it into a very modern brand new system from the FBI, you're not gonna be able to report your stats. That's just the way the world works. So eventually it'll be right, but we have to remember <clears throat> it has always been thus, right? When you go back and you look at historical data there's always been, oh, yeah, Chicago wasn't here. This wasn't there, right? Uh, <clears throat> you may or may not know that the numbers on pollution, uh, for years, we excluded airlines from emissions reports. <laughs> now, I don't know how much gasoline an airline uses, but it's more than my car, right, ever. Like one flight is more than my car will ever use. So, you know. Numbers are just numbers, and you have to have some understanding of where they're getting them, um, and that everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. See, and, and what I find is that the preparation in the system to track and report on this 
is actually oddly encouraging, right? The fact that they are now capturing not just some raw numbers, but some of the deeper details associated with incidents and crimes and other things that are going on. I think that that's a really good thing, right? They they are using more robust database technologies that allow them to track a lot deeper version of the story, not just a thing and a date, but a lot more color around that thing. Now, I have to wonder if the the lack of participation is that it's harder to submit that much information. There's a little bit more manual labor, perhaps on the front end in the reporting process, or if it is something more nefarious and and something that they're not reporting because they want to polish up their numbers a little bit. I, I, I hope it's not that they're just not submitting so that they can go out and in campaign season say, did you see under my administration, things got better because crimes went down that were reported, right? I hope it's not that. And I'm choosing to focus instead on the leverage of this technology to give us analytics that we can use for trending and for uh, a little bit more deep understanding of the things that are happening in our world. The transition is and the adoption of these new systems, especially at a mega level across thousands and thousands of organizations, that's always going to be messy. Turning on a system like that doesn't happen in a hot minute. But if the system does get adopted, we really should have a better understanding of things that are going on. This, for me, comes down to the bottom line of tech is only cool if it's actually adopted by the people who are supposed to be using it. We've been spending a lot of time around the industry in the last couple of years talking about a phenomenon, a sales model that we call you know, layer, land, adopt, expand, renew, right? Do a little bit, make sure the customer is happy for it, add another thing to it. Rather than trying to sell everything all at once, it is a land and expand philosophy. But the key to the entire machinery is it only works if the adoption piece of the puzzle actually works. And it's not surprising to you guys that this industry has a very broad capability of selling things that we then just go, cool, congratulations, you now own it, and then we disappear and move on to selling the next thing. That is not a way to roll out a technology. If you don't have a plan for adoption, you don't have a plan for technology. Well, I keep looking at the fact that transparency makes a difference here. So, that, that, so in a way, that the, the fact that there is journalism that is covering the lack of reporting, that is causing some awareness, which creates some pressure to actually fix that, is part of, of it. And I keep falling back on this idea of transparency around both data and security. Because every single time I find one of these issues, I look and say, if there was better transparency, it appears this would go better. <laughs> that just seems to be the theme that I can fall back on almost reliably. And I think that that's actually a principle that I want business owners, and particularly IT pros and IT services companies to remember. The more you make this process transparent and the more the, the use of data, of the technology, of the, the, the systems, the more you make that transparent, the better things go. Like just universal, you can almost do it from a. You can do it from a data privacy angle. You can do it from a security angle. You can do it from a collection angle. You can just do so much of this is always solved by going more transparent, and that isn't necessarily the muscle everyone immediately defaults to, and it isn't a natural, comfortable place. But I keep finding, go transparent. This gets better. 
I would also add one little note from the world of social science research. Um, if this is a representative sample, then we don't need 100% reporting, right? In many ways, there, there's kind of this weird area when you get like a really good representative sample, which can be as low as 8%, 10% of the population, you get a pretty good representation. There's a period somewhere in the middle around 50% where you actually get a very unrepresentative sample and then as you approach 90%, then the sample gets more and more representative of the actual population. So the world is a very complicated place. And sadly, we don't have any choice but to stay here. <laughs> well, and I think that you can get to a representative sample if the people that are being included are all already include someplace like Los Angeles and New York City. If they are not included in the analysis, I dare say that crime statistics from like Poughkeepsie and Des Moines are probably not going to be accurately reflected in the numbers. So uh, we do need better adoption of this process. And I just, again, I will hammer that point until uh, the, the last time I have energy in my body tech by itself does nothing it only works if we actually use it and people have to be motivated to use these things let me switch us to a much more happy topic and that is no uh wally beaver you don't get a flying car this year but you might get your own personal drone news out of india the indian navy of all places is buying some new personal one-person drones uh, for use in reconnaissance and whatever. And uh, so we've got a link to a couple of sites. Uh, very interesting that, uh, you know, if you think about these, these drones, it's something that suddenly came up and now it's like, oh, this is pretty easy because I wouldn't want a flying car that flies like an airplane because they, I just think that they would be smashing into each other and falling out of the sky. But drones can actually move in all directions and very quickly, and they can be programmed to avoid each other. Uh, I've always I've always liked the idea of a flying car, but I've feared the idea that uh, they're driven by the same morons who drive regular cars, right? So <laughs> I kind of like but the Carl. idea. <laughs> But Carl, you might get your flying car this year. So I, as we were prepping for this, I remembered an article that I had just read from, la from last week where the makers of the Jetson 1, which is a single passenger aircraft, which can take off and land from a driveway, has indicated one of its first customers is in Charlottesville, Virginia, with a delivery scheduled later this year. And in fact, this came up because the state and local officials in Virginia have started discussing this because they know they have no laws ready in place to handle this. And I, I, when the moment I read this article about the drone, my immediate thought was this is, we're now going to be in a position quickly where we have to regulate the quote-unquote rules of the road above the road. <laughs> it's, well, it's, what's we have interesting to do is if you, if you look at the science fiction movies, They've kind of figured out how this goes. You know, you see what a pick your favorite movie. Mine is Fifth Element. That they drive in little known corridors. Where, you know, instead of being all random all over the place, they drive in in little you know predefined tunnels that fit, I guess, three dimensional uh, coordinates. Um, but still, wouldn't you rather have a drone than an airplane type flying car? 
I just I, I, yes, I would I would argue that the Jetson one is some of the best branding that we've come across in a year. That is very appropriate. It evokes all of the appropriate emotions, but that uh, vertical takeoff and landing and the ability to behave like a helicopter. I think that's infinitely safer than uh, rear pro propulsion forward with lift. Um, I, I would leave that to the professionals. I agree with Carl on that one. Uh, I, I see enough people do enough stupid things in two dimensions that if you add a third dimension, I think it might blink out their capabilities for rational thought and they would just go bouncing off of each other. But I think that these uh, personal drones, these transportation vehicles, human-sized drones, if you will, I think that they're actually safe, right? As you read into the, some of the data that's associated with this, they are easier to maneuver. They are well within the skill set of anybody who's ever owned or used an Xbox or a PlayStation. We can actually manipulate these things and they don't go at jet engine speeds. And so I think we can hopefully have at least a whole lot of, you know, experimentation going on with these things. But I, I was interested in this one. So I did some additional research out and the numbers that they are forecasting, right? Uh, and again, take this with a grain of salt with any new and emerging bleeding edge technologies, the, the adoption projections that, that we're talking about, but they're talking about literally hundreds of thousands as the addressable market for these kinds of drone vehicles. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever actually ridden in a taxi in Delhi, India. Um, it's one of the most threatening physical safety experiences that I have ever had. Uh, taxis in Tijuana are notorious, but they ain't got nothing on a taxi in Delhi. And yet the accident rates over there for all the chaos, for all the crowding and the quantity that they deal with, every single person knows that a crash is their personal financial responsibility. And so while they may proceed at what looks like chaos, they rarely actually contact each other. I think that might be a good study population to say, let's put a few of these things out there in the air and see if they are equally safe as they could be on the ground. Uh, the numbers to me are a little bit staggering to think we could get that much proliferation of drone transportation in a short period of time. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm 100% in. I want my flying car, dang it, and I'll take it in the form of a helicopter. I have to be honest, I, my, my rational mind knows that this will never happen in my lifetime. I mean, I literally remember the cover of Popular Mechanics and Mechanics Illustrated from the 1960s. They all had flying cars. Oh, in 20 years, you're all gonna be flying these cars. The reality is we can't get over a thousand people to actually go out and get registered and get licensed to fly drones legally in the United States. You're not going to get 100,000 people to go through the pilot training it takes to be licensed to fly an actual vehicle that weighs a ton or two. So, so Carl, do you, do you think people at a saloon when the Model T was rolling out had that conversation about cars? Oh, we can't get 100,000 people to register and learn to take away from their horse and buggy. I, I'm legitimately asking, like, is this a phenomenon of now as we're seeing more of this? 
or do we think it's cyclical in history? Because I could see three guys sitting in a saloon who didn't have microphones in a podcast, uh, you know, back when the, the Model T is rolling out, having the same conversation about registration. I'm going to say no only because people didn't talk about passing laws and regulations on every freaking piece of life in the 1920s or 1910s. But uh, I would also say, I mean, quite realistically, look at the real world. A handful of billionaires will start by owning these things and then a handful of millionaires, but they're not going to get trained in what it takes. When you think of like all the pilots in the United States, right, there's a lot of work to become a pilot and to stay a pilot. And the average human being doesn't even have the understanding of math to get that done. But uh, more importantly, there will be a class of chauffeurs who will be licensed to do this. And you and I are probably never going to own one of these things or fly one of these things, but so we might be a passenger. Exactly. I, I think that might actually be the model, right? A hundred thousand Uber flyers, not drivers that uh, that will carry you and I around the city. I, I would be okay with that as a phase one of the deployment of this technology. I, I don't complain that the only the tiny me. bit of the money that it costs to fly this thing. <laughs> so I'm going to, exactly. but I'm going to, I'm going to throw out another model of it because I, I actually don't think it's going to play out that way because I think. And I'm going to pull from my sort of video game experience a little bit of this, right? So I can fly uh, poorly through a simulation of like where, where the computer is doing a good portion of the work, right? Because it understands the environment around it. It has, it, it has predetermined lanes. There's even games where they're literally known as on-rail shooters, right? Where, the, where you only control certain elements of the, of the environment and the system controls the rest. So while I appear to be flying the vehicle, I actually only have certain amount of control and the computer does the rest. I don't think it's necessarily that many steps to say we can pull out processing power and simulations, particularly in a space that isn't as complicated as the ground, right? Because you are, because you actually do have clear all around you where you can create these lanes and you have certain control, but the computer won't let you move without those. Based on our original thinking of this will be those kind of stunt tunnels, I actually could see that humans might have the ability to do that. What uh, What's the insurance premium on that? <laughs> it's all about how good the more AI than, is. <laughs> exactly. More than the cost of your house. But I'm here for human Xbox experimentation. Let's get busy with this. Very good. And with that very positive look up into the sky, we come to the end of episode 201 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.